Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. Today, Jim and I are going to take a deeper dive into refining for our respective regions. So, Jim, tell us about Canada. So before we get into the America's refineries, I want to answer a customer question I received. The question involved the injunction Echo Justice filed against Alberta. An environmental firm called Echo Justice filed an application for injunction in the court of Queen's Bench of Alberta two weeks ago to stop the release of an Alberta government report into the alleged foreign-funded attacks of Alberta's energy industry. Echo Justice's, Echo Justice's injunction reads, Echo Justice and other organizations now face the prospect of having to respond to the public release of evidence or submissions made to the inquiry that may be harmful to their reputation or prejud prejudicial to their position. That was a quote. Devin Page, the executive director of Echo Justice, said in a recent news release, quote, organizations and individuals particularly those working at the grassroots level, should not be expected to redirect their resources away from the critical work they're doing to prevent the climate catastrophe and take part in the process that is stacked against them, unquote. I wonder if Echo Justice has afforded Alberta and the Canadian energy companies the same grace they're asking for. I, for one, can't wait to read the report. So moving on to Canada. Canada has 17 refineries and a possible 18th being talked about in Kitimat. I'll get to that one in a minute. The 17 refineries have the capacity to refine a bit over 2 million barrels a day. Much of the detail I'm going to get into today comes from our partner, IIR, Industrial Information Resource, and their weekly refining report. So starting on the east side, Irving Oil owns two refineries on the Atlantic side of Canada the 130,000-barrel-a-day come-by-chance refinery in Newfoundland was recently purchased but remains down while Irving Oil reconfigures it to be a feeder for the big boy at St. John's. St. John's Refinery in New Brunswick is a hefty 320,000-barrel-a-day refinery, very well suited to process all flavors of crude oil. This refinery distributes gasoline, diesel, and lubes throughout the Atlantic provinces of Canada. Around October of 2018, Irving's traders figured out a way to get product down the U.S. Atlantic coast as far as New York. At the peak in 2019, the refinery was supplying 7.2 million barrels a day, a million barrels a month into the U.S. Now COVID constrained, only about 3.5 million barrels a month makes its way down. I say only like it's not close to half of St. John's production. Since St. John's has been operating it has sent more volume to Pad 1A, so not including New York, but Connecticut up through Maine. It has sent more volume to Pad 1A in the months of June and July than the next two biggest suppliers, the UK and the Netherlands, combined. Said a different way, St. John's has replaced the UK and the Netherlands for clean product supply into Pad 1A. Moving on. Suncor's refinery in Montreal and Valero's refinery in Quebec that some of us seasoned folks may know as Ultramar, get oil primarily from the link of Enbridge Pipelines 6, 7, and 9. Line 5, 
which is a different path, but starts and stops in the same places as line six, is now shut, shut in awaiting legal proceedings as Enbridge was trying to replace some pipe under the Straits of Mackinac. These two refineries balance the province of Quebec pretty well, with the exception of oxygenate and alkylate. Basically, this is to create premium gasoline for the Bugattis and Peugeot 907s that cruise those streets. Strangely, though, the supply does not come from the UK, but distant lands such as Texas, Louisiana, and the Netherlands. Continuing to move west, Ontario has five refineries that time and circumstance have rendered them difficult to compete. The refinery south and west of Toronto is in a great location to serve a booming city, but at 15,000 barrels a day, it's really small. Moving down Lake Erie, Imperial's Nanticoke refinery is in the proverbial no man's land, but positioned on the water to serve primarily Toronto and Buffalo, New York. It's boxed in by the product lines in upstate New York and the refinery complex on the west side of Lake Erie. The three refineries in Sarnia, Sarnia is about a 60 degree angle north and east of Detroit, have a similar problem. They are nicely sized to serve the area when they were built. Imperial Sarnia was built in 1897, but now are undersized and inefficient. They're in a great position to receive crude being at the termination point of Enbridge Line 5 and 6. However, they're in a tough position to distribute refined product as from the cost structure, they're on the back of the line to serve Detroit and Toronto. There is a mid-sized and one small refinery in Saskatchewan that pretty much serve the local need. Moving on to Alberta and British Columbia, Lordminster Refinery is a small at 30,000 barrels a day and sitting on the border of Alberta and Saskatchewan, and it's a regional uh, refinery. The three bigger refineries around Edmonton serve both the Edmonton and the Calgary markets, as well as the mountain communities of both provinces. Prince George Refinery is a 12,000 barrel a day refinery right in the heart of BC's mountain country. Parkland bought the old Chevron refinery in Burnaby, red industrial side of Vancouver, at 55,000 barrels a day. It's a little undersized to serve the community the size of Vancouver. Luckily for them, they have 610,000 barrels a day of refining capacity just across the border in the Seattle-Tacoma area. The Parkland refinery may be small, but their distribution system is massive. 85% of all Canadians live within 15 minutes of a Parkland location. And that's saying something considering Canada is the second biggest country in the world. That's great info. Um, tell us about Canada's closest neighbor. All right. Neighbors to the south. Our partners at IAR uh, tell me Pad 1 has about 906,000 barrels a day of refining capacity and 238,000 barrels of a day are offline due to COVID-related cap-off, which is jargon for idled. Much of these refineries in Pad 1 were, were built for a different era. The scale and efficiency of refineries in the south, as well as the massive pipeline expansion, has made many of these refineries expensive to operate and seemingly destined to become terminals. Moving to the middle part of the country, Pad 2 has about 4 million barrels a day capacity 
with one million of that being offline to COVID-related cap-off. IIR data suggests this capacity will, will remain offline until September. Most, if not all, of the Pad 2 refineries have changed their configuration in the last 7 to 10 years to process both Canadian heavy and light Bakken grade. The refinery grouping around Chicago, as well as the grouping between Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Northern Texas, known as Group 3, have the capacity and pipeline flexibility to service the geographic, geographical area and some extra to export into the Canadian refined product market. Pad 4 doesn't get much love as the refineries are generally smaller and geographically dispersed. However, Holly Frontier mentioned in their Q2 earnings call that they ran their last barrel of crude on August 3rd through their 52,000 barrel a day Cheyenne, Wyoming plant. After all the intermediaries make it through the process, they will reconfigure the plant to process biodiesel. Expected completion Q1 2023. So moving to the left coast, the refineries are clumped into three primary areas around Seattle, the Oakland side of the San Francisco Bay Area, and Los Angeles. Note there are two, two small refineries each in Bakersfield, California, and Santa Maria, California. Refining on the West Coast is considerably more expensive than the Gulf Coast. To give you some frame of reference, on their Q4 2019 earnings call, Marathon said their cost to process barrels in the Gulf Coast is about $5.20 a barrel. The cost in the West Coast is $8.45 a barrel. The primary reasons being they are not very close to any crude supply. California oil production is small. And remember two weeks ago, I talked about California resources being in bankruptcy. So expensive crude intake, debilitating taxes and regulatory requirements, and exorbitant labor costs. No wonder Californians are paying 72% more for their gasoline than we are here in Texas. One other thing to note, in Marathon's earnings call on August 3rd, they mentioned they will be closing two refineries, a relatively small regional refinery in Gallup, New Mexico, and their 167,000 barrel a day Martinez refinery. This refinery is in the Suisan Bay, about 30 miles in from the Pacific Ocean. Uh, but don't worry, you wine lovers who want to fly into the SFO airport and take the scenic drive up to Napa. There will be plenty of gasoline and diesel available. Closing Marathon Martinez gives the other four refineries in the Bay Area a fighting chance to survive. Or does it? If Marathon Martinez turns into a products terminal, they will shed a huge amount of tax, regulatory burden, and labor costs while opening the door for South Korean and Chinese product imports. And finally, moving to the Gulf Coast. The U.S. Gulf Coast has more than half the country's refining capacity with over 9.3 million barrels. Currently, about 1.6 million barrels per day of that capacity is COVID-related cap-off, and another 340,000 barrels a day is offline for non-COVID-related reasons. Corpus Christi, Houston... Port Arthur, which is just south of Beaumont, and the area around New Orleans have the biggest concentration of refineries. There are some other big ones scattered around, like Chevron's Pascagoula, Mississippi, and Exxon's Baton Rouge, Louisiana plants. The Gulf Coast refineries have some very distinct advantages 
over refineries in the Americas and worldwide. Some of these advantages are substantial crude pipe connectivity. One could even argue overbuilt. Connectivity between refineries allows intermediate products to transfer easily. Very close to big demand centers. Red, a lot of us drive trucks. Substantial product pipeline connectivity to reach other domestic demand centers and efficient access to foreign demand centers for export. That's the positive part. The not so positive part for running one of these behemoths is competition is fierce. All of these refineries are big and efficient. When one goes down, the impact is swift and far reaching. I'll give you two examples. The Gulf Coast was long and getting longer, gasoline and diesel, until a couple of separate fires in July at the Shell Deal Park impacted both the domestic supply and the supply available for export. The crude unit named DU-2 mostly came up August 6th, running 202 of the 270,000 barrels a day. Crude unit named DU-1 is running at diminished capacity at 52 of 70,000 barrels a day. The catcracker is looking to ramp up in a week or so once the uh, crude units get up. The other example is much more personal to me. Shell has put the convent refinery and some related assets on the block. Still, still too soon for me to talk about. So for the meantime, let's just chalk it up to overcapacity and falling behind the efficiency curve. Okay, okay. Um, now educate us on Mexico. The Mexican refining system has six refineries and a little over 1.6 million barrels a day of refining capacity. A seventh refinery is in the process of being built at Dos Bocas. The Dos Bocas refinery will be about 340,000 barrels a day, which will take Mexican refining capacity very close to where the country is currently for oil production, around 2 million barrels a day. In general, the Mexican refining system bears a striking similarity to the Canadian system. While the Canadian system is divided east to west with no interaction between regions, the Mexican system is mostly divided north to south with only rail capacity to bridge the gap if needed, and that capacity is rarely used. So now to the refining complex in the north. The Gulf of Mexico coastal town of Tampico has a 190,000 barrel a day refinery, but possibly more important, a big import facility on the Rio Panuca, Panuco. This import facility and refinery are very critical to the stabilization of the Mexican product market as it is centrally located and can service both the northern market, mostly Monterey, and the central Mexican markets of San Luis Potosi, as well as the Mexican city product pool. Moving slightly north along the coastline, the city of Altamira does receive some product ships. There's ample tankage there and a rail facility that serves Monterey. The big refinery in the north is a Cadierta refinery on the south side of Monterey. Clearly, this facility is the base load supplier for the nearly 4.8 million people in the area. Currently, this refinery, this refinery's 150,000 barrel a day crude unit is down due to a fire on July 20th. This is expected to be down through August 16th. 
leaving only the 120,000 barrel a day unit operating. Monterey does have good refined product connectivity. One pipeline from El Paso, Texas. Howard Energy has a pipeline from Corpus Christi, Texas to Laredo to Monterey. And Newstar has three pipeline connectivity points at the border that go to Monterey. One is a little north of Laredo on Odom and Laredo pipeline, one around Brownsville, and one around McAllen on the expanded Valley pipeline. Important to note, even when this refinery gets up and running 100%, it is not big enough to support the demand of Monterey or the agricultural markets in the north-central regions of Mexico. U.S. product imports will continue to be a way of life. Heading to heading south to the Mexico City market, two big refineries and a couple of import facilities service the Mexico City market. Tuxpan being the primary import area of refined product for Mexico and Veracruz being the other. The two big refineries are the 245,000 barrel a day refinery at Salamanca and the 315,000 barrel a day Tula refinery just north of Mexico City. Our partners at IIR tell me the Salamanca refinery has one crude unit completely down and the other is running at a diminished capacity. The 40,000 barrel a day cat cracker has been down the last week in July due to some planned work on the unit. Total capacity currently for the Salamanca refinery only running 150,000 barrels a day of its 245 capacity. Tula is only running at 110,000 barrels a day of its 315,000 barrel a day capacity. The balance of Mexico City's demand coming via imports, principally from Texas refineries. One thing to note here, this demand will not be taken care of domestically until the Dos Bocas refinery is up and running. 2023, I'm looking at you. I hear from engineering friends that have worked on the pipeline from Salamanca to Mexico City that parts of the pipe look like a patchwork quilt your grandma may have made for you with so many hot taps being removed and a patch welded over them. Moving south to the Bay of Campeche, the 285,000-barrel-a-day refinery at Minat Itlan and the previously mentioned import port at Veracruz are absolutely critical to the Mexican product market as they serve the industrial state of Veracruz and the oil production state of Tabasco. This is the southern heart of the Mexican industrial complex and also an area that will see the impact of China's Belt and Road Initiative that I've mentioned in previous podcasts. Finally, to the Pacific side of Mexico and the 330,000 barrel a day refinery at Salina Cruz. Salina Cruz is connected to Mexico's oil production via the 20-inch Trans-Isthmus pipeline and the Trans-Isthmus rail line. The refinery was designed to service the western side of Mexico, but it appears that President Obrador and some Chinese investors may have some new thoughts on that. In episode nine, I talked about, uh, about a month or two ago, I, I talked about in greater detail the potential of this refinery and the deficits of the Salina Cruz port. So with about 900,000 barrels of Mexican refining production down in July, Refinitive Research estimates the product supply is being made up the following way from the U.S. 
565,000 barrels a day via waterborne freight, 140,000 barrels a day via pipeline, 35,000 barrels a day via Howard Energy's rail out of Corpus Christi, and 30,000 barrels a day rail via KC Southern out of Galena Park, which is on the east side of Houston, to a total of 770,000 barrels a day imports for July with the estimated 660,000 barrels a day of the 770 being gasoline, most of the Mexican refining capacity will be coming back online mid-August. So, Corey, tell us about South American refining. Well, let me first set the stage. There's almost 111, 111 million barrels of refining capacity in the world. And for those of you not terribly familiar with refining, I'm talking crude distillation capacity. Downstream processing units are another story. And Jim mentioned IR several times, and according to our partner IR, where I get most of my refining data, there's just over 5.2 million barrels per day of refining capacity in South America. So just shy of 5% of the world's capacity. And understand that I'm only talking about South America, not the entirety of Latin America. Mexico, as Jim discussed, has its own story. And there is capacity spread throughout the Caribbean. South America's refined products demand pre-COVID was about 5.8 million barrels per day. That included everything from LPGs to fuel oil. If you're talking the marquee products, gasoline, diesel, and jet, the demand was just below 4 million barrels a day. That demand is spread over about 425 million people. Contrast that with the U.S. at 330 million people and a 2019 marquee refined products products supplied over 15 million barrels per day. But, Corey, I bet there's one country in South America that really stands out above the rest. You are absolutely right. You know, never mind that Chile is the only South American OECD member or that Venezuela now is the only South American OPEC member. The real epicenter of South American energy is Brazil. And before I forget, Refinitiv is currently collaborating with Real Vision on Corona Correction, short videos from Refinitiv thought leaders about how the virus is affecting different facets of different sectors. Jim and I were each interviewed, so please check out the series on Refinitiv's website or YouTube. Jim and I will post the links to our respective videos when they are available. But back to your regularly scheduled programming. So when it comes to the 13 South American countries, Brazil represents half of just about everything. Brazil's population makes up about half of all South America. It represents a little more than half of South America's products demand produces 55% of all crude oil produced in South America, but it falls a bit short of half of this refining capacity at 42.3%. That's why I want to devote my talk today to Brazil. Uh, there have been COVID-inspired refining cuts due to demand weakness and worker availability across South America, but in the bulk of countries, crude production exceeds or is roughly balanced with refining capacity. There are exceptions, such as Peru, and Venezuela has its own uniqueness, South America's largely accrued production story. Of the 17 refineries in Brazil with a combined capacity of just under 2.2 million barrels a day, Petrobras owns 15, which accounts for around 95% of Brazil's capacity. As of August 7th, there was about 48 million barrels per day of Brazilian capacity, uh, 48,000 barrels per day of Brazilian capacity offline unrelated to COVID, but over 277,000 barrels per day that can be tied to the virus. Thus, Brazilian utilization is about 85%. So 
considering that Brazil has the second highest number of coronavirus cases in the world, it's not bad. So I've talked about this several times. Uh, Brazil wants to be a crude producer and exporter, and Petrobras specifically is focusing on the up upstream. It had eight refineries up for sale prior to the pandemic, and now looks closer to selling one of them, Arlam. Arlam is Brazil's oldest refinery and second largest, with a capacity of 323,000 barrels a day. Now it makes a range of products, including food-grade paraffin wax, and accounted for around 13% of Brazil's refined products production in 2019. Uh, Mudala Investment Company, an Abu Dhabi firm, looks to be the most likely buyer, but Petrobras's asset sales program is, is unique and allows additional offers once a deal is reached. So we'll have to see how this all works out. Arlam is located in Brazil's Bahia state, which holds about 7.5% of Brazil's population, but the refinery supplies parts of Bahia, Sergipe, and other northern states in northeastern Brazil. This region's uh, transportation fuel demand growth has been close to twice that of Brazil's overall growth over the last few years. The refiner has sporadically exported product to Europe, the US and Asia, most recently two cargoes of naphtha to South Korea. Arlam is currently running at about 63% capacity. One 32,000 barrel per day crude unit has been offline since 2017. Well, Petrobras originally announced its intention to sell the eight refiners and planned to do so in two phases. Arlem was included in the first phase, as was Arnest, Repar, and Refap. Repar and Refap both have just over 200,000 barrels per day of capacity, and both of these refineries serve South Brazil. Repar accounts for about 12% of Brazil's refined products production, and Refap is currently running at about 60% capacity but Repar has ramped up to about 85% utilization. The real interesting refinery of this group is Arnes, perhaps more commonly known as the Abru Ilima refinery. This particular asset is the country's newest, but it only has one of its uh, two trains operating. Arnes is probably the most expensive refinery ever built. The last I heard it was going to cost something like $20 billion, uh, which was five times the original budget. The original purpose of building RNS was to reduce imports, specifically diesel. In 2019, Brazil averaged about 200,000 barrels per day of diesel imports from the U.S. alone. But it had such a high cost, perhaps the country starts to limit reliance on foreign sources, but certainly didn't have a lot, uh, save a lot in doing so. The other refineries originally blocked, though holding some strategic significance, are considerably smaller, representing collectively about 200,000 barrels per day of capacity. In the interest of time, I'm just going to talk about one of the refineries not on the block, Replan. If you want to discuss how the others fit into the system, shoot me an email. But the Replan refinery, the largest in Brazil at 434,000 barrels per day, is like Noah's Ark. It has two of everything, two crude towers, two cracking units, two cokers. Uh, Replan is fairly new as far as refineries go. It started operating in 1972 and was master plan with logistics. It's close to main highway and rail routes and Sao Paulo state air terminals. And it's only 73 miles from the city of Sao Paulo, Brazil's largest, the population over 12 million. Replant is a strategic asset and had been operating at about 64% capacity, but has evidently started ramping up production. It has become a significant player in producing VLSFO bunkers, uh, producing about 12% of all Petrobras produced VLSFO this year, and just announced record asphalt and S10 diesel sales. 
As we move forward out of the crisis and see a pickup in trade, the VLSFO production aspect will certainly become increasingly important. So guys, that's all I have time for today, but would love to talk about this further. So please feel free to reach out. Um, Jim, wrap it up for us. The COVID-19 pandemic created a historic dip in refined product demand. This demand destruction sped up the market dynamics that were already at play in the refining industry. We are just now starting to see the impact of these dynamics. The implications on crude and refined product flow will be felt for years into the future. Next week, Corey and I will be talking about the politics of energy. That will be fun. Like I said, please look out for Jim and my Real Vision Corona Correction videos. And as always, please reach out with your questions. Have a great week.